This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And listeners are always asking us to mention or recommend historical biographies and other books that they might enjoy. And in this episode, we're going to do a little better than that. We were lucky enough to have the opportunity to talk to Pulitzer Prize winning author David McCullough recently about his new book. And we've included a portion of that discussion here in this podcast. Yeah, and we were obviously excited to get the chance to interview Mr. McCullough, but we were especially excited when we found out his latest book called The Greater Journey is really a collection almost of miniature biographies that covers so many people through this large span of time, 1830 to 1900, Americans going to Paris to perfect their trade, really ambitious people, not just going to travel, not just going to, to see the world, but to become something new and make something of themselves. Yeah, and they held a variety of professions. They were doctors, artists, writers, politicians, and the book really covers their journey, their experiences in Paris, and also what they brought back to America with them. Probably most importantly, what they brought back, how they shaped their own country. And even though it has those large overarching themes that I mentioned, it's also a personal book, too. I really saw it as a visual book, 
partly because it is about so many writers and artists and architects, I kept on looking at pictures because we were working from from proofs that didn't have paintings and illustrations included yet. But it, it just very much came to life in front of my eyes. Yeah, and to me, it seemed a lot like a travel narrative, and not just because of those visual aspects that you mentioned, but also just because of the feeling you get. You can feel what it's like to be one of these protagonists arriving in Paris for the first time and experiencing all of these things. And anyone who's ever traveled, I think, can really relate to that. Mr. McCullough himself has described it as a literary historic guidebook, and that's sort of a different way of thinking about history books. And it is unique in McCullough's own work, I'd say. He's written several biographies. He's written books that focus precisely on a single building event or a single year even with 1776. Yet this book has such a broad focus. And so the first thing we wanted to talk to him about was how he picked a topic like this in the first place. And here's what he had to say. Well, I've been very interested for a long time in the part of the American story that has taken place in Paris, and particularly the period uh, between uh, the post-Jefferson Adams-Franklin time uh, of the 18th century and the uh, Gertrude Stein, Scott Fitzgerald, Hemingway time in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, For one thing, it's been largely overlooked, and for another, the people who are part of that story are in immensely important to American life, American history, and uh, the way we are. And their time in Paris was instrumental in what they became and therefore instrumental in the way we are. And I also feel very strongly that uh, history isn't just about politics and the military or social issues. A great deal of it, of course, is. But it's also about art and music and medicine and philosophy and learning and poetry. And, and it's, history is human. And, and uh, the arts and uh, the creative nature of a society are an immensely big part of the human experience. We found that point really interesting, especially how he says that history is human, because this is such a human book. There are, as we mentioned, so many protagonists in it. And so we were curious to know how Mr. McCullough picked who to include. Well, I could have could have included maybe 120 people. But of course, that wouldn't have been a book that would have been a catalog. (laughs) And I had no interest in writing a catalog. I also had no interest in writing about tourists or people who went to Paris for business purposes, or because they were assigned to go there by our uh, government, with one or two exceptions, because what happened to those one or two exceptions was truly exceptional, particularly Elihu Washburn, our minister to Paris at the time of the Franco-Prussian War. But by and large, most of my characters are men and women of, uh, of talent, in some cases exceptional talent, who were ambitious to excel in their chosen careers. Not ambitious necessarily to become famous or rich or powerful, but to excel, to be the best they could possibly be. And that's a wonderful pursuit, and 
in all cases, they had very interesting lives, and in some cases uh, are surprising if they spring out of seemingly, seemingly nowhere, like Augustus St. Gaudens, who, the sculptor who was, who was a, an immigrant shoemaker's son, or um, George Healy, who uh, was an Irish kid from Boston with no money and no contacts in France, and no knowledge of French, who went off because he was determined he was going to become a painter. And we had no art schools at that time. We had no schools of architecture. We had no museums where one could go and look at paintings. If you wanted to, to be tops in your field, in the field of art, architecture, sculpture, you almost had to go to Paris. And those are the people that interested me. And I should say, too, very importantly, that how much of what happened to them did they themselves record in letters and diaries? That was all important. And in the case of all the major characters in this book, everything uh, is drawn from their letters or diaries or the letters or diaries of their friends or their wife or others who were close to them. And so they, in a sense, have left this rich record that, uh, as I said earlier, uh, has been surprisingly overlooked. I have, I have worked with all kinds of rich materials in my historical research and research into the lives of some of the biographies that I've written. But I don't know as I've ever had such a, a wealth, a richness of material to, to work with as I have for this book. And I've enjoyed it immensely. That point that he makes about primary sources like letters and journals, using sources that contain protagonists' own words as research, that comes across, I think, very clearly in the book. And it made us even more curious about his research process. We wanted to know what that process entailed, especially since this story happens on two different continents. We wanted to know what did the research in Paris involve and, and the stateside research as well. Well, I did spend a good deal of time in Paris, but really it was more to soak up the place, to, to uh, absorb as well as I could everything about Paris in all seasons, to know, to know that setting uh, as thoroughly as one can. The, the real research, however, is all here in the United States. It's at uh, university libraries, it's in uh, the Library of Congress or Massachusetts Historical Society, the Virginia Historical Society. I think that uh, uh, some 36 institutions altogether uh, have been involved in, in the total body of my research work. And uh, in some cases, they were documents or portions of documents that nobody literally had ever looked at. And, uh, and often the, the most revealing material is to be found in what might be called the secondary characters, not the major characters, but those who, uh, much as in a play, deliver lines, deliver uh, explanations or descriptions that uh, bring, to, bring the, uh, the principal uh, actors, the protagonists, and what happened to light into vivid, into vivid focus the way nobody else has. So those, those people have been of huge importance to me also. And I researched newspapers, photographs, paintings. Paintings are very 
important source. For one thing, because it, unlike black and white photographs, they give you the color of someone's eyes or the or the tone of their complexion or the color of their hair uh, and so forth. And since a number of these people uh, were themselves painters, that's of, of uh, considerable consequence as well. So we're always interested in the secondary characters in history. A lot of times they do write the most interesting stuff down. And Mr. McCullough himself had noted that in the source notes for A Greater Journey. He wrote of Charles Beecher, who he was the one, even though he's the less famous brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, he was the one who wrote the detailed account of her time in Paris, something that makes her story really come to life. So I was curious if there were any of those secondary characters. Obviously, it didn't quite happen for Charles Beecher, but any other secondary characters in the research process that really became primary characters in the book, ones who, to Mr. McCullough, just deserved their own mini-biography? Yes, indeed. That's a very perceptive question. uh, Gussie St. Gaudens, the wife of of Gus St. Gaudens, he was Augustus, and she was Augusta. (laughs) Gussie St. Gaudens uh, went to Paris with her new husband, she was a bride in Paris, which was unusual for American women, and she did not speak French. She was a painter, so she uh, was eager to be there for that reason as well. And she wrote over 200 letters uh, back to her parents describing their life, their days, their problems, their shortages of this or that, and uh, and um, and what she was struggling with and what she was uh, worried about. She was quite deaf, and her deafness was a very serious handicap. And so she was dealing with that as well. But those letters are all at the, uh, at the library at Dartmouth College. And I thought they would be of use and that they would be interesting. But as I read into them and as, I, as she opened up herself to uh, her parents and, and consequently, therefore, to us, Uh, she became more than a minor character. She became a very important character. And I I found her to be an admirable character, uh, as well as extremely interesting as a human being. Hearing him talk so admiringly about Gussie made us wonder if he had a favorite protagonist in this story. And he kind of turned it around on us and turned it into the old historical question, that classic question of who would you have lunch with if you could? And this is what he had to say. I was fascinated by um, Emma Willard uh, and, uh, and Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to become a doctor. Uh, if I could spend time with one of my characters uh, or any length of time, I suppose it might be uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes or Charles Sumner. Charles Sumner is an immensely uh, important figure in American history. He was the great voice for abolition in the United States Senate, the most powerful voice for abolition really effectively in in the country. And the idea that he went to Paris because he just simply felt he didn't know enough, and he went over there to attend lectures at the Sorbonne. Uh, And it was then that he discovered that uh, black people uh, need not be treated uh, any differently than anyone else, and wondered why, as he recorded in his journal, that we did so in this country at that time, and asked himself, again, in the journal, is it because of the way we've been taught, or is it in the natural order of things to have no bias 
to have no prejudice because he saw the black students at the Sorbonne um, had exactly the same kinds of ambitions for themselves as he did. They dressed no differently. They, they were treated no differently. And it was an epiphany for him. And he came home determined to do something about it. And he certainly did. I'm very interested in what they brought home, physically, literally, or figuratively. And what he brought home, needless to say, was of immense value, just as the the uh, training that the young American architects received at the Ecole uh, de Beaux-Arts in architecture had a huge impact on on the look of American cities. And, uh, and people like... Uh, John Singer Sargent and Mary Cassatt paintings. Uh, their paintings now are are treasures uh, and to be seen in most of the major museums of our country. They stand out as as geniuses, uh, American geniuses, and they only achieved that not just because of their talent, but how hard they worked. I think that's one of the one of the many things I learned from the four years I spent on the book is how hard these brilliant people worked, and uh, without exception. And John Singer Sargent, who probably was the most naturally gifted of them all, he was a prodigy in painting, uh, worked harder than anybody, Never, really never stopped working his whole life. So I made a note of the part where he mentioned Oliver Wendell Holmes, because one of the most striking scenes in the book was where Holmes returns to Paris as a much older man. He, of course, studied there as a youth, and he's just sort of struck by the fact that so much is the same, yet so much has changed, and he he considers it his own fountain of youth. So we were curious if Mr. McCullough himself has been visiting Paris throughout his lifetime. It just seemed very personal in a way. Here's what he had to say. I have gone there for 50 years, uh, and I went back um, just last fall. And I can tell you I am just about exactly the same age that Holmes was when he went back, and uh, when I wrote that scene, uh, there was a lot of empathy at work, because I know exactly how he felt, and I particularly loved when he went to the old cafe that he and his friends had all attended, which is still there, the Procope, um, that he said, you don't have to go to Florida to find uh, the Fountain of Youth, it's right here. And I have felt that strongly uh, in Paris. I think lots of people do. Um, There is something quite magic about it. And and they they all said it, one way or another, without exception. And I think that's a way that... I tried very hard in my work to get closer to these banished people the eminent dead, if you will. And and one of the ways you do it is you go where they were. Uh, the setting of experience, of any human experience, is of the utmost importance to understand not just what happened, but, but the mood or the, the uh, spell or the 
or the challenge that a given setting presents. And I've always felt in my work that I had to go soak it up myself. When I was writing about Panama, I had to spend time in Panama, feel that heat, feel the humidity, wonder, try to imagine as best I could what it would have been like to work in a climate like that. And when Sumner and others talk about the the bone-cutting chill of a Paris winter, that damp, chill air that cuts right through to you, I knew I had to go there and experience it. I didn't realize that we experience it every single day, <laughs> day after day for several weeks. I don't think the sun came up once in, uh, for more than about 10 minutes. But when I read Sumner's account of how he was trying to get warm by the fireplace, wearing his overcoat inside, I, I was very, very much more sympathetic than I would have been if I'd been just sitting at home trying to imagine it. And conversely, on a beautiful spring morning, to walk through the Garden of the Tuileries or the Luxembourg Gardens, uh, it, it's you, you can be transported in time in a matter of seconds. Hearing Mr. McCullough describe Paris is a good indication of what you're in store for if you read the book. And Paris is so much at the center of the story. You learn so much about the city through the experiences of the Americans spending time there and some of the histories of the French people in the story as well. But you also learn a lot about America, too. So it made me wonder whether Mr. McCullough really thought of this as more of a history of America or a history of Paris. Here's what he had to say. I see it as a book about the lifelong adventure of learning. And part of learning is to get out of our realm, out of our milieu, out of our of ourselves for a while. I also see it as a lesson, a reminder that so much of what we feel, and proudly, but not always correctly, is strictly an American uh, creation or invention or way of seeing things or thinking, isn't at all. Uh, if, people, if people pass that magnificent statue of General Sherman uh, at the corner of 59th and 5th Avenue in New York, they think, ah, there's a great American figure and done by a great American sculpture. Well, if uh, if it were possible to pick it up and turn it over and look at the bottom, you see, made in Paris, made in Paris by an American in Paris. Uh, Faneuil Hall in Boston, one of the most uh, popular historic sites in all of our country, and rightly so. Up on the stage, filling the most, the whole backdrop of the stage, is a huge painting of. Uh, Daniel Webster's reply to Hain, Senator Hain, done by the Boston painter, George Healy, in Paris. That's enormous painting was painted by an American while he was living in Paris. Paris was the cultural capital of the world. The way we might say, I think fairly, that New York is the cultural capital of the world today, in our time, has been since the end of World War II. And... Uh, and also, you have to remember how behind we were in medicine and in training in 
art and music and 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 in ideas. Uh, the Sorbonne was probably the greatest university of the world at that time. And of course, it had, France had the policy, which seems almost unimaginable, that if you're a foreign student, you could go there for nothing, as you could study at their medical, their great medical college, university, the Ecole de Medicine, for nothing if you were a, if you're a foreigner. And so many of these young Americans were taking advantage of that. So it was great getting to conduct that interview with David McCullough and uh, a pleasure to read the book, too. I really enjoyed it. And you guys are in luck, too, because our interview actually went on quite a bit longer than that. And we asked him some questions about his personal career and some insider tips on his research style. So there's going to be a whole other podcast coming where he'll talk about all that. And we'll also discuss some more of our favorite parts about this book. In the meantime, if you do have a chance to read the book, it's called The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. And it just came out? It did. Or if you have any opinions or things you want to say about some of the protagonists that are included, we've named a few here. We've talked about a lot of them on this podcast before. We'd like to start a little book club discussion, book club-esque discussion about it. And you can contribute to that by visiting our Facebook page or hitting us up on Twitter. There wouldn't be much of a discussion, but, you know, you could leave us a comment <laughs> or something. Very short discussion. Very brief comment. Or you can write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Or you can join us on the blogs and talking about it. I think probably the best place to do it. Yeah, I think we'll be contributing some thoughts there about it. And you can look up those blogs by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. 
We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.